We are currently knee-deep, even though it is summer, uh, in an ongoing study of something called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, should you spend any amount of time at Van City, you'll notice either myself, Josh, or Cameron, or Tab, the way he's doing, anyone who's up here, um, with this really obvious preoccupation with the teachings and the lifestyle of Jesus of Nazareth. It's something that we're going to speak at at length and on and on again. In fact, the entire premise of our church is that we would learn to practice the way of Jesus together so that we might see his will done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to do much more than simply sing songs about Jesus, though that's beautiful. We want to know him and be with him. We want him to be more than just song lyrics. We want to do way more than set our focus on Jesus for an hour and a half every Sunday evening. We want to become like Jesus uh, every second of every day. We want to do much more than simply listen to sermons about the teachings of Jesus. We want to put them into practice. We want to do the things that Jesus did and we go about this by, like Tab said and Cam was saying just a moment ago, by gathering as a family throughout the week uh, in small groups called Van City Communities. Um, and we do it by gathering here on Sunday evening. What we're doing right now is a macro family, the gathering uh, as well. We use both of those things as a means of learning and living out the teachings of Jesus in the context of a community of people because we believe that's how it's done. And because of our great concern for the way of Jesus, we have been working through one first century biography of Jesus authored by a gentleman called Matthew. Now in chapter 5 of said biography, Matthew begins to detail Jesus' most famous collection of essential teachings for life as an apprentice of Jesus, what is often called the Sermon on the Mount. And these teachings are incendiary. They are so provocative because Jesus does not offer advice for personal betterment in the Sermon on the Mount. There's no self-help, there's no idealism, there's no mere suggestions for this might be a better way to live. Jesus is making very clear how his disciples are to live and consequently what life will look like within the kingdom of God as a result. So Jesus begins with this fascinating disclaimer that what follows in his teachings is not just his own interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures. Remember, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, so that's, that's ordinary enough. What Jesus is doing is actually fulfilling the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. So having confessed to his intention to fulfill what's called the law, Jesus then lays out six examples of how the legal code of the Old Testament is indeed fulfilled in him and his teachings. So he begins, with anger and then he moves on to lust and then he addresses divorce and then he moves on to integrity and then Jesus is going to talk about nonviolence and then finally he's going to talk about how to love your enemies so if you've missed a Sunday here recently I'd strongly recommend catching up on the podcast so that you can begin to see the bigger picture that's being painted here now remember throughout the series we've described the Torah which is what Jesus audience understood to be God's law and what we know is the first five books of the Old Testament the Torah was God's means of leading rebellious Israel back to obedience and this is one key in understanding Jesus six examples of life and what he called the kingdom of God the idea is that the law was not God's ultimate purpose for humanity it was a way of building a fence around disobedient children who are dead set on running into oncoming traffic 
So, which, with each of Jesus' six examples, he draws his disciples' attention to the Torah only to then explain what God's heart behind the law was in the first place. So he begins with anger. Yes, the Torah teaches that murder is forbidden, for example. But listen, Jesus says, don't stop there. God's heart is that you would abstain even from anger against a brother or a sister. This is how Jesus' disciples embody the kingdom of God. Next, Jesus confronts lust and specifically the objectification of women. The law forbids adultery, and rightly so, but God's heart is that you would rid yourselves of even the lust, the, the long objectifying stare, the thought patterns and habits that lead to adultery before it's actually physically taking place. To God, they're one and the same, and we are to reject both of them. But then Jesus deviates from his established trajectory in introducing his third paradigm, which is divorce. So with both anger and and lust, Jesus employs a direct citation of the Old Testament law that is, for lack of a more profound way of saying it, a sort of no-brainer. That is, don't kill people. Sure, that makes sense enough. Doesn't take a ton of convincing to get that one across. Don't cheat on your spouse. Sure, fair enough. But then Jesus insists that these no-brainer prohibitions are, are laws. They're rules, but they're not the greatest vision for God's uh, idea of human flourishing. That is, the rule, the law, is don't kill people. Don't cheat on your spouse. But the greater righteousness is not to get angry with people, let alone kill them, not to objectify or lust after women, let alone commit adultery against them. God's heart, after all, is that we would live in total peace with one another, honoring our brothers and sisters and honoring our God-given sexuality. But as we mentioned last week, when Jesus arrives at his third example, divorce, he does not quote a specific uh, prohibition from the Old Testament. Instead, he kind of mentions a misinterpreted passage from Deuteronomy. And in doing so, Jesus is commenting on a common debate of his time, which was, we all think divorce is okay, but when is it okay to divorce? So rather than a straightforward, no-brainer rule, Jesus weighs in on a selection from the Torah that was more like damage control rather than... Uh, a straightforward prohibition from the Old Testament. So Jesus says, listen, when the Torah describes how to carry out divorce, that's just damage control. God's will is that no one would be divorced in the first place. And of course, Jesus doesn't stop there. Things are about to get even more interesting. Let's pick up in the text where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 5 and begin reading with me in verse 33. You guys ready? You, you're, are you ready? Okay, great. Thank you so much. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So immediately, there are two significant points of interest in Jesus' opening line, let alone what follows. The first is that we've entered into a new collection of related teachings within the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is evidenced by his refreshed introductions. Jesus says, again, you've heard it said. And what follows are called the three political commands uh, against oaths, Next will be against violence, and finally against the hatred of national or personal enemies. But that's not all. There's also an interesting connection to the teaching that preceded this one, which was divorce. See, in the Torah, the law allows that, uh, for divorce 
but it's not God's heart. Israel is disobedient, so divorce happens, and the Torah establishes certain guidelines in addressing it. Like I said, damage control, so to speak. And something, is similar, something similar is happening here. New Testament scholar R.T. France puts it this way. While the subject is completely different, the principle by which Jesus responds to what was said in this case is very similar to that of divorce. A law which aims to control human failure is set aside in favor of a bold reassertion of the way God intended things to be. Lifelong faithfulness in marriage and simple truthfulness in speech without the need for oaths to undergird it. In each case, the Old Testament laws quoted may still have a troubleshooting function, but they are misused if they are made the basis of ethical teaching. Meaning, the Old Testament citations were not themselves black and white ethics. They were working to bring order to a sort of fallen mess that was Israel at the time. Now, upon first glance, I realize this appears the least demanding of any of Jesus' commands so far. I mean, after arguing that anger is tantamount to murder and lust is tantamount to adultery and then prohibiting divorce, Jesus says, and you also shouldn't swear oaths. That feels to me like, oh, okay, got it. Easy. Done. But the more you unpack everything here, the more complicated things become. To understand just what Jesus is getting at, we need to divide Jesus' command into three unique paradigms. Oaths in the general sense, public oaths, and then private oaths. So let's begin with what the heck an oath is in the first place. An oath in the ancient world in the first century was an invocation of God or of some sacred object or thing to undergird a statement or a promise. And though oaths may have looked quite different in the ancient world, the concept is tremendously normal in our culture as well. Most of us, I suspect, have any number of oath-like expressions employed to solidify our otherwise flimsy good word. So we say things like, oh, I promise, or I swear, or I swear to God. Uh, my mom used to say, I promise in front of Jesus and everyone. Um, an old friend of mine who would, after, only after breaking a promise, he would acknowledge that that was a blunder on his part and then say, but listen, what I'm about to give you is the oak, which was his most unbreakable word. That was his, uh, his oath, word is bond, the oak. Uh, many of you say something way more simple and less oath-sounding to, uh, you know, bolden, embolden the, the promises that you're making or the things, statements that you're making. Uh, a lot of you say literally to emphasize your word, and let's face it, about 99% of the time, what you mean is figuratively, which interestingly is precisely the opposite of literally. In fact, my personal suggestion, this is a tangent, is that anytime you feel the urge to say the word literally, just go ahead and swap it with figuratively. It's almost certainly the word you're looking for. Um, I've resorted to being kind of a butthead about it, so someone tells me that like, oh yeah, I was arguing with this individual and they and literally bit my head off. And I went, oh my God, how, how did they do that? What, was, what did it look like and how are you still alive? You know, obviously I understand what they're saying. What was the medical bill like? Now, tangent aside, I think that we all understand oaths in that sense, using supplemental language to reinforce an ordinary statement or a promise. But an oath could also be something less flippant. It could be a solemn and deliberate promise to God or to an institution or to a government of an action that is going to be performed, a promise to be kept. And here things get kind of tricky because the Old Testament law not only provided for certain oaths, in some cases it demanded that they be made. Here's one example from the Torah. Fear Yahweh God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. 
But Jesus isn't suggesting that such demands were in and of themselves bad things. Instead, Jesus is declaring that these regulations would be entirely unnecessary if God's people would simply practice consistent truthfulness in the first place. When Jesus, again, begins with, you have heard it said, he doesn't provide an exact citation of the Old Testament. He essentially summarizes the gist of a number of passages in both the law and the Old Testament at large, which require oaths to be taken very seriously. Here are just two examples among many. Numbers 30 says, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he says. This one's from Deuteronomy 23. If you make a vow to Yahweh God, do not be slow to pay it, for Yahweh God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to Yahweh your God with your own mouth. And Jesus commands that his disciples refrain from breaking oaths and vows by abstaining from them altogether. Oaths, though often optional, were sometimes mandatory in the Old Testament, and Jesus speaks to the damage control that the law assigns to oaths and says, listen, if you're simply honest, no oath would be necessary in the first place. In fact, that we say them at all only suggests that we lie otherwise. Therefore, be honest and make no oaths, Jesus says, at all. An oath ordinarily was accomplished by invoking God himself as the one who would oversee and validate a person's word. Even so, much like our ordinary expression of, I swear to God, these invocations had been sort of drained of their seriousness. So as a result, some Jews had developed the interesting technique of employing more inoffensive substitutes rather than using the name of God to swear. God's name itself, according to the Torah, is a sacred thing. So as such, uh, Leviticus 19 prohibited swearing falsely using the name of God. So consider this crude analogy to get your head around what I'm trying to describe. Once, a long time ago, uh, I was on tour playing music, and I entered into, you know, getting these long conversations on road trips. I'm sure you guys know all about it. I'm in the van, and uh, somehow we start to discuss Tim McGraw's discography <laughs> and, uh, and some of the better or less so songs within Tim McGraw's discography. And uh, he's a country singer, if you don't know. Uh, and I entered into this heated debate uh, with one of my bandmates over a lyric from a Tim McGraw song called Indian Outlaw. Now, this was a, a, in a time before smartphones or readily available internet even, so there's no Google in your pocket, there's no streaming services. Uh, we have no way to fact check this until we like get to a CD store and buy the thing <laughs> and listen to it. So at this point, it's my memory of the song against his memory of the song. My friend thought that it was absolutely absurd that the song in question would include a line about its narrator wearing buffalo briefs. Um, and I argued that, ab absurd though it may be, that lyric is definitely in there. And really, why, why would anyone, you know, object to the absurdity of any lyric from Tim McGraw's Indian Outlaw? Why would that surprise you? At any rate, the debate heated to the degree that a wager was proposed. In this case, $5 was on the line. Now, this may seem like an insignificant sum to you, but in our world, $5 was honestly probably comparable to like your $50 or something like that. Uh, so be that as it may, so convinced was I of my rightness that I was willing to stake $5 
on this factoid. My friend, who had moments prior assured the entire van there was absolutely no possible way he could ever be incorrect, all that stuff, laughing, oh my gosh, what a fool, he thinks that line's in there. This same friend, when I proposed the wager of $5, he was suddenly less confident you know, with $5 on the line. So he proposed, how about $1, you know? And, and I get that that's a silly story, but with $5 on the line, my friend's previously staggering confidence was suddenly enfeebled. And when God himself raises the stakes on swearing by his name, saying like, listen, if you swear by my name and then don't follow through, there will be serious consequences, then simply replacing his name with another word is a bit like saying, whoa, hey, sheesh, okay, uh, I, I, don't, I won't swear by God, but I'll swear by heaven. Um, built into the substitute is the greater probability of falsehood, if that makes sense. When one is unwilling to commit to high stakes, it's like they're admitting to a low probability of follow-through on their oath. And oaths become something like flipping a coin. And I think you all get this. You know, it's like saying you'll do something in passing only to have someone say, do you promise that you will do that? And then suddenly you're like, oh, well, I mean, I don't know if I promised. I just said I would. To actually swear by God's name is, is pretty scary when it stands to reason the promise could be broken. So some Jews suggested swear by heaven or swear by earth or swear by Jerusalem, the holy city of God, or swear by yourself if you must. So in the text that follows, Jesus lists each of these common swearing examples of his day and he dismisses them one by one for their ultimate futility by cleverly using the Old Testament against them. Look at this. Jesus says, I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool. He's saying, you think invoking heaven or earth protects you from using God's name and therefore justifies your broken oath? Remember Isaiah 66? This is what Yahweh says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And Jesus goes on, or don't swear by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. You think swearing by Jerusalem is any better? Remember Psalm 48, beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon and Mount Zion, the city of the great king. And finally, do not swear by your own head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Jesus is saying, swear by yourself, your own head, really? Who made your head in the first place? Jesus' point was that Though the casual employment of oaths and breaking them had led to clever ways around using God's name, they yet utilize things that are inseparably linked to God, his dwelling place, his possession, his creation. And his reasoning is straightforward enough. All your swearing is done before God. There's no way around that. God requires truthfulness, and truthfulness requires no bolstering and no persuasion and no manipulation to hold itself up. When any of these things are tethered to our words, uh, whether that's bolstering or persuasion or manipulation, the transparency of our truthfulness has already been compromised. Add Jesus, uh, and Jesus goes on to say that bolstering and persuasion and manipulation aren't just mistaken, they are from the evil one, which seems like, yikes, I, that, that's, that doesn't sound great at all. The need to reinforce our common yes and no is, quote, from the evil one because it betrays our failure to fully realize and embodies God's great standard for truthfulness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, said it really nicely when he wrote, disciples of Jesus should not swear because there's no such thing as speech not spoken before God. All of their words should be nothing but truth so that nothing requires verification by oath. An oath consigns all other statements to the darkness of doubt. That is why it is from the evil one, 
There's no truth toward Jesus without truth toward other people. Lying destroys community. But truth rends false community and founds genuine fellowship. And as we mentioned earlier, this concept of oaths could be divided into two categories. So you have public and private. The former is explicit and the latter is implicit in Jesus' teaching. So let's quickly unpack both of them before we figure out what this means for you and I tonight. First, public oaths. This is Jesus' explicit prohibition in this passage. A public oath is as straightforward as a pledge to a government or a legal oath or a pledge of allegiance, even oath-like expressions of nationalistic vows. Uh, Scott McKnight sums it up thusly. Uh, thusly. Jesus is talking about oaths, legally binding oath. That's what he quotes from Moses. That's what he ridicules in his four kinds of oaths. And that's what he prohibits at the end of this passage. In fact, scholars cite a later story in Matthew as the striking example of Jesus applying his own teaching in the Jewish Supreme Court. The story goes like this. Uh, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. First, Jesus refuses to answer at all, if you know the story, which is really interesting. But he's charged a second time. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, in this particular context, for Jesus to properly participate in this oath that's been imposed on him, he would acknowledge the question with specificity and then employ the name of God to validate his reply. But watch what he does. Jesus says, you have said so, Jesus replied. I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus refuses to answer the question specifically, instead reminding them of what they've said before making a bolder statement on his own authority, refusing to invoke the name of God at all. And the early church went on to apply this concept quite thoroughly. For example, there's a well-represented record of a moniker employed regularly throughout the Roman Empire that went, Caesar is Lord. And though there is evidence of imperial cults in the Roman Empire, which were groups of people who worshipped Caesar as a god, the phrase itself was really quite ordinary. It was as inoffensive as our modern things like God bless America or I pledge allegiance to the flag. And scholars have noted the significance such a thing attaches to the New Testament idiom, Jesus is Lord. And the record that supports such a phrase become normative throughout the early church. The inference is actually tremendously subversive. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. It might have been something like someone today saying, I do not pledge allegiance to the flag. I pledge allegiance to Jesus the King. The early church took this line of thinking so seriously that they faced legal action and deportation and even execution for refusing to pledge allegiance to the Roman Empire. And interesting, uh, interestingly, pledging allegiance to the Roman Empire wasn't necessarily always some sort of blood oath and life service to the pagan empire. Early Christians wouldn't even say normal state oaths and idioms. We know for sure that they refused to participate in military oaths or in warfare. So it leaves you wondering, man, what the heck was Jesus thinking? Did Jesus forget that to reject all oaths would put any disciple in unavoidable tension with all governments, all of whom have historically required certain oaths to be taken? 
In fact, it's this command in particular, among others in the Sermon on the Mount, that have famously contributed to tension between the state and what's called the Anabaptist tradition, a a tradition to which uh, I myself happily belong. Now, the Anabaptists make up a very large group of Christians spanning all the way back from the medieval period or perhaps earlier to today, including everyone from the Mennonites to the Amish to the contemporary uh, scholars who don't don't live on a farm somewhere, uh, urban missional leaders, even megachurch pastors. Uh, One Anabaptist writer noted the way this text in particular has shaped the Mennonite tradition, saying this, Since the oath has always been held essential to the existence of the state, it was inevitable that the refusal of Mennonites to use it would bring them into conflict with the government. But of course, the intense brevity of Jesus' words, he doesn't say a ton other than don't swear them at all, it forces us to grapple with the ramifications. Confronted with the apparent dogmatic nature of Jesus' command, uh, Matthew scholar Dale Bruner noted this, I think if Christians read this command with a deserved fiduciary obligation and then encounter an oath, they will have to ask themselves, can I instead say yes or no here? Must I use an oath? Obedience to this command will require our consciences to be rubbed raw again and again. This command politicizes. The intensity of Jesus' command, his total prohibition of oaths, is actually totally unique in the Jewish thinking of his day. Most of the early Christians took this teaching literally and they obeyed it. We see this evidenced as early as subsequent New Testament writings like this one from James who wrote this, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, or you will be condemned. And so interestingly, you can't make the case that the early church went on to further qualify or even soften Jesus' prohibition on oaths, as some argue is the case for, say, divorce, uh, which later receives further allowances and nuance from Paul. But in the case of oaths, James goes on to emphasize the prohibition of oaths with the preface, above all, which is, I think, strongly worded. And this literal, literal application carried on until the time of Constantine in about the fourth century when the shrewd politician Constantine made Christianity a state religion of the Roman Empire, bringing with it a slew of toxic consequences that actually carry on to this day. But even so, many disciples of Jesus continued in applying the intensity of Jesus' prohibition of oaths across the board. Again, this from German Mennonite Christian Neff. He wrote that uh, it was only after the state church was set up and Christianity became a state religion that the oath returned to use among Christians. So vexing and seemingly impractical is this hardcore teaching from Jesus that some modern Christians and and writers have proposed that maybe none of Jesus' teachings are even possible. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, they suggest, is meant to do little more than highlight, highlight our great inability to live as God truly intends. And thus it would send us humbled and incapable and headlong into the arms of a Savior who is ultimately capable. And while we certainly recognize the often shocking nature of Jesus' stark, demanding commands, we at Advanced City personally must insist again and again that we believe we are intended to keep the commands of Jesus. We believe Jesus actually intends his disciples to pursue mastery of his teachings. Around this premise, we've actually oriented our entire church. Now, 
Of course, we don't plan to do this on our own, but through the empowering of the Holy Spirit and in process, obviously, as we travel the long road of spiritual formation together. And we recognize a certain tension here. Um, we aim to keep Jesus' commands, but isolating and emphasizing any given command to the point of black and white fanaticism is actually how cults operate, not how the church operates. I think uh, Dale Bruner says it really well when he writes, the fanaticism of ostentatious obedience can, of course, ruin any command, but so can ingenious evasions. I have the feeling that Jesus gave this command, among other reasons, in order to make disciples always question the state and their relation to it. To end tonight, there's something just as costly as the public oath, also implied by the teaching of Jesus, uh, that I think that might resonate with a lot of us more personally, and that is the private oath. What are the implications for swearing across the board, not just uh, legally binding or formal civic oaths, but privately? If the disciple of Jesus rejects all supplemental language and opts to build into every response complete truthfulness, even in a simple yes or no, what does this mean for you and I as disciples of Jesus tonight? Now, a bit of forewarning, uh, I feel very strongly about what follows personally. Uh, so, you know, uh, don't take it with a grain of salt. I think it's true, but just to prep you. Now, let me use Van City as a point of contact in this discussion. Uh, the way that we approach church personally is divided into two basic forms. We already talked about that, forms for lack of a better word. We gather here every Sunday evening, and we gather in smaller groups throughout the week called Van City uh, Communities. Cameron, is Cameron still standing anywhere around here? No? Dang it. He was going to be my example. Okay, it's fine. We'll move on without him. Uh, I'll just ask you to think in your mind then without him. If you had to guess in your head, you don't have to yell anything out, what would you propose is probably the greatest issue, the greatest complication for each of our Vansity communities, at least as a whole? It's not uh, adultery. It's not divorce. It's not anger and infighting. Those, those things happen, absolutely. Um, it's flakiness. In fact, I would say the same is actually true of the Sunday gathering as well. And flakiness ultimately is a compromise of one's honesty and integrity. And I'm not entirely sure if it's a generational thing or a cultural thing or both or something else altogether that I've missed. But a lack of integrity in, in our words and in our commitments, to my estimation personally and in my personal experience, is a towering monster of an issue in the culture in which we live and operate. Saying that we'll be somewhere or do something, then canceling, often last minute or not showing up or not committing or not following through, is an absolute affront to the teaching of Jesus who requires that his disciples be known for their integrity, their faithfulness, and the faithfulness of not just their words but their deeds as well. Again, this from scholar Dale Bruner. When a Christian says, I will be there, the Christian will be there. When a Christian says no, the Christian means no. When a Christian joins a group or enrolls in a course or accepts an invitation, the Christian fully means what that act entails and is faithfully there. Yes means yes. By obeying this little command, a Christian's whole life is invested with the seriousness of an oath. A Christian's simple yes is to be the equivalent of a pagan's whole string of oaths. And really, frankly, that this requires clarification and emphasis uh, often baffles and, and discourages me personally. So stop for a moment and join me in, in a thought exercise, if you will. I want you to bring to mind, if you will, every truly faithful friend 
that you know of or that you have in your life. And when I say faithful, I mean it uh, thusly. A friend who, after claiming they will be somewhere or do something, even when said claim is done casually or in passing, that friend will, barring death or extreme tragedy or a fluke of circumstances, they will absolutely be where they said they would be, when they said they would be there, or will do exactly what they said they would do. So think of however many individuals you have in your life that live up to that standard. I, going out on a limb here to guess that maybe some of you imagined one or two people right away and then you drew a blank. Uh, maybe you had a spouse or a sibling come to mind uh, and then that was kind of about it. Uh, maybe some of you struggled to think of a, a single person and maybe you're one of the um, very, very few who actually could think of quite a bit and you should be grateful and I don't say that casually. Now, with that number of how many truly faithful friends you have in your life, think of how many disciples of Jesus you know personally. And contrast that first number with the second number. The number of truly faithful friends with the numbers of professed Christians that you know. Because disciples of Jesus are tasked to build and to uphold a reputation of faithfulness akin to whatever friend it was that you were able to conjure up during that exercise. The sort of person who has no use for lengthy or formal oaths or special promises because simply saying they'll do something carries all the, one, all the weight one might hope for in a commitment. So they don't have to say, man, I really, really promise or they don't have to say, I swear to God, or they don't have to say, I know I blew it last time, but this time, you know, they don't need the oak. This time I give you the solemn oak. Uh, the disciple of Jesus does what they say they will do. They honor their commitments. They follow through. And they don't do this only when it applies to elaborate, uh, thoroughly planned formalities or professional engagements. They do this even when mentioning they'll do something casually or in passing. Once you've committed to doing something, it matters not how glamorous the commitment in question might be or what might come along to supersede it. If, for example, you planned on grabbing a cup of coffee with a friend in the morning, grab the cup of coffee <laughs> with your friend in the morning. You are now booked. That's how this works. All other plans must be made around this engagement. <laughs> not vice versa. If it'd be better for you to shift your schedule or to sleep in or to meet up with someone cooler or to go the next day, these things are all beside the point because you're going. You said you would and your friend doesn't need to know that you would have liked to move things around or this was actually really hard for you. What matters to them is that you're one of their only faithful friends. You're the friend that they thought of in that little exercise we just did. You said you'd be somewhere and do something and that means it's as good as done because you follow Jesus or you're tired, or you'd like to catch up on some work, or you just don't learned another friend is in town, or you'd love a morning at home, those things will have to play second fiddle to the fact that you said you'd do something else. Otherwise, just don't make a commitment in the first place. It's really that simple. Learn to say no. Learn to plan ahead. Uh, the thing that you carry around in your pocket, it has a calendar in it, a sophisticated calendar. It's shocking the things that it can do. Uh, because, and listen to me, if you're the type who bails and if you're the type who, who cancels or who flakes or doesn't follow through, the truth is that in those instances you're often really frustrating and you can't be depended on. Folks hesitate to entrust you with anything 
when you're not around and someone mentions, say, a list of people who've committed to doing something in particular and your name comes up, they all say, yeah, but who knows? We'll see. And perhaps a little bit more dire, but still completely true, people think of you as selfish in those situations because you're unwilling to make even small sacrifices just to honor the thing you yourself have pledged your presence or involvement to. Maybe you're thought of as a bad friend as a result. And think about all that in the context of the name that you bear. Those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus. They're so-and-so. They're the person who, they're so great, but, you know, their word is worthless. Or they can't be counted on. They back out at the last second. You never know. They cancel appointments. They don't show up. And they claim to follow Jesus. Yikes. And believe me when I say the people in your life who do not follow Jesus, they notice when you lack integrity. They notice when you do not follow through and they make that connection. Most of us don't think of ourselves as flaky, I think. But stop and ask yourself, do I honor even the commitments I regard as insignificant? If you say you'll do something or be somewhere, will others expect you without hesitation or will they await your possible cancellation text message? And of course, to some extent, I realize most of us, if not every single one of us, myself absolutely included, have had a lapse of integrity at some point in our lives or maybe a ton. I know that I have. I've done it all. I, I get it. I'm right there with you guys. But for those of us who are disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, there's a tremendous urgency in maintaining our reliability and our reputation. And when we blow it, we repent. We don't simply sigh and say, oh yeah, whoops, drop the ball, but no big deal, and then move on. You look at that as an egregious affront to the way of Jesus. You ask for forgiveness. You acknowledge what you did was wrong, and you make changes. You, that's what repent means. You turn around and go in a new direction. Uh, not long, too long ago, I myself, I like to think of myself as semi-dependable. You know, every, Anyone that I've blown it with is now thinking, that's not true. I remember this one time. Um, but I, I, I try. And uh, recently... I double booked myself and it wasn't because like I backed out or I didn't want to do something. I made two commitments way in advance and I didn't uh, have enough foresight or knowledge or responsibility to see that there was a conflict when I booked them. So I, I agreed on the one hand to play this concert thing and then on another hand I had an elder meeting with our elders here at Van City. And I didn't spot the conflict until it was creeping right up on me and I happened to look at my uh, engagements for the coming week. And now I had absolutely committed to two things. And because of my, um, my lack of responsible planning, it forced me to shatter one of those two commitments because I couldn't possibly be in two places at one time. Um, and that wasn't because like, oh, I, you know, I wanted to go do this other thing instead. It was because I lacked the maturity and the responsibility to think ahead and to use the calendar that I carry around with me everywhere I go. So I had to repent. I had to acknowledge, man, that was so lame on my part. It was a bummer. It wasn't just like, oh, whoopsie-daisy. Uh, and I had to repent and ask for forgiveness and learn from my mistakes. And luckily, I was surrounded by the gracious family of God who forgave me. And, you know, we got together next time. The truth is, ours is a culture often devoid of honesty altogether. I think that you know that already. So in the haze of digital addiction and hyper-individuality and intense personal fragility and blame shifting and image curation and flakiness is really often so ordinary that it borders on boring. You know, the fact that I'm going on and on about it, it's like, this is just the air that we breathe. And, and you know as well as I do that the musty cellar floor that is social media is a sinister cesspool of dishonesty satanic 
you know, because you look at this thing, it's like, oh my gosh, the sparkly world of beautiful families and photogenic children and incredible vacations and nice, neat little possessions and poses and delicious dinners and affectionate parents with all this flowery language and gorgeous landscapes and cute outfits and dear friends and oh, so naturally candid and equally flattering poses that we have in the day. <laughs> Embellishments and omissions and fabrications and deceptions and, you know, just Instagram in a nutshell. May it be forever destroyed in the fires of Gehenna. <laughs> Too much? <laughs> Sorry, okay. My, that you can take with a grain of salt. My point is that the more that you curate life or that you're exposed to the curation of other people's images, the more that truth adjustments bleed into your words and your conversations and your interactions, and then details are overlooked to make us look better or elements are exaggerated to create a better story, or the lame things other people have done are embellished to enrich gossip and make us look better, more superior. And, and frankly, this is a struggle for me personally, and, and you know, I just made that whole thing, I'm so cool because I don't use social media to do all that stuff. But really, when I'm just frankly and candidly talking to a friend one-on-one, um, I often exaggerate or I omit details. And I've, I think of it as this innocuous, innocent thing. I'm a novelist. I like the way that words fit together in sentences. So I can easily find myself telling what I think is a really great story, more entertaining, but it's based on it, what it could only be called loosely the truth at best. And really, that is an affront to the way of Jesus. It is a blatant and egregious violation of the way of Jesus. It is a compromise of my integrity and my honesty and my truthfulness because it is ultimately dishonest. Ours is a culture of dishonesty, a world of compromised integrity. We can lazily drift in the sludge of it with everyone else or you can reject it altogether. And if you choose the latter, rejection, it will require drastic measures. In the words of Jesus, do not swear an oath at all. Let your yes be yes and no means no. Anything beyond this, Jesus says, is from the evil one. And though it seems, man, strongly worded, this is consistent with Jesus' understanding of the devil as the, ultimately the source of all lies, either directly or at least abstractly. In John's biography of Jesus, Jesus himself will say this of the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, to end tonight, I realize that the likely reaction to this is that the majority of us, myself included, as I was reading and studying this week and writing this, I was tremendously convicted uh, and perhaps more than a little intimidated by this passage. I'm right there with you. That's absolutely okay. We're all in process, and this is a safe place to learn and practice the way of Jesus together. And believe me when I say I realize that there's nuance and there's discretion here. I'm not saying if you've ever blown it, man, you let Jesus down so bad. You're such a liar. No one's going to listen to you anymore. I'm not saying that if tomorrow you actually are puking in a toilet and you can't go and get coffee, oh, I'm going to let Jesus down. You know, there, there is nuance and there's details and subtleties in the way that you and your friends navigate your honesty and your transparency. Um, I don't mean to hammer you to death with your failings or horrify you with the high stakes of Jesus' commands. But all that said, I do want us, myself included, to learn the teachings of Jesus and to put them into practice. 
something we've said again and again about living the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus is that it takes a lot of practice. That's the way Je reason Jesus favors that word, puts them into practice. It requires practice. You don't master it overnight. Certain things come more naturally to you than someone else and vice versa. And again, in theory, when you live this out in the context of the church, you don't do it alone. And, and frankly, if you follow Jesus, you have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead alive in you. Jesus' Spirit is capable of a great many incredible, miraculous feats. It enables us to become men and women of integrity and honest words and faithfulness and commitment just as well as it can accomplish miraculous hearings and prophecy and words of knowledge and raising people from the dead. It can absolutely transform us into men and women of integrity. And you also have the family of God around you for accountability, for encouragement, to walk with you graciously when you mess up and to encourage you when you are that friend that they thought of in your head. And, in, and whoever you thought of, by the way, please tell them uh, that, that, that they are who you thought of uh, this evening. When community is done well, it should offer both those things, accountability and encouragement. Now, for some of you, this means growing in the often difficult art of saying no. And it, it could really be that simple. No means no. Never commit to that which you cannot do. Think before you answer. Uh, my friend Katie uh, has been recently exercising deliberately and in the moment. Let me think about that before I say yes or no to you um, because she knows that she doesn't want to rush into something that she can't follow through with. So think before you answer. And even when it's uh, a bummer to have to do so, say, no, I, I just can't. I, I can't do that. I can't commit to that, rather. For others, I think this means growing in the maturity of planning and communication. You may be disorganized by nature. I'm right there with you. But if that tendency causes you to violate your word, something simply has to change, disorganized or organized. You, and you may say something like, I'm not all about that technology, man, or whatever it is. Well, then you better get yourself a paper calendar or a stone tablet, or whatever it is that helps you remember your, your commitments and honor your word. And I realize ours is a culture that seems to arbitrarily quantify the urgency of various forms of communication, which is a really strange thing. There's like a, there's tears to it. An email you respond to, you know, before you die, or uh, if you can. Uh, is that just me? Sorry. Uh, a text you respond to, you know, when you think of it, maybe before the day is out. If it's a friend, they're going to be offended. Uh, a phone call is like a state of emergency, man. Someone's dying or on fire. You better answer that thing. It's so rare. Uh, and believe me, I am in no way suggesting that you all ought to succumb to the tyranny of the urgent, uh, make yourselves helpless against the artificial urgency of every new invitation and every new email and every new text. What I am proposing is that our yes becomes yes, always. And our no becomes no. I'm, I'm proposing we learn to become people of commitment, thoughtful, pre-planned commitment, people of integrity, people who need no additional qualifications or promises or oaths and then consequently need no apologies. For most of us, I think really the call is to grow up and simply honor our words even when it's difficult or inconvenient or undesirable. Um, ask Abby how often, and this is not a brag on my part because this, this is me doing the way of Jesus begrudgingly, uh, but I often go into things going, man, this thing is about the last thing I want to do right now, and it's the worst possible thing for my schedule at the moment. And she asked them, why, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? I said, because I said I would do it, dang it. And really what this has taught me 
is that when you've done that enough, you, you want to get better at planning and communication and foresight and saying no because a disciple of Jesus does what they said they would do, always. And then may the world around us, our friends, our families, our peers, our coworkers, our neighbors, classmates, on down the list, may they all begin to recognize, man, they follow Jesus and they honor the things that they say. This is something that I think we must learn to do together. Uh, that means many of us need to learn how to graciously and lovingly call out flakiness when we see it in our communities, um, rather than taking the easy and more comfortable road of non-confrontation, and certainly rather than just complaining about it when they're not around. And I don't mean beat up on them and like, well, you're the worst flake, but lovingly and graciously say, man, how can I help you follow through on your commitments as you help me follow through on my commitments? Now, of course, and we're, we're about to end. Hang on me one more second. Private integrity and credibility and dependability are all unavoidable inferences built into Jesus' teachings. When he talks about, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But he envisions, envisions something that's way broader. Jesus' kingdom vision is of an alternative society in which his disciples would have absolutely, absolutely no use whatsoever for oaths of any kind, formal or informal, private or public, personal or civil. And to get there, Jesus proposes radical measures. Do not swear an oath at all. And this is, of course, in keeping with what came before it and what will come after it. To live in the kind of peace God envisions for his people, get rid of all anger. Not just some, get rid of all anger. To live in the kind of purity God envisions for his people, get rid of all lust, all objectification and oppression of women. To live in the kind of faithfulness God envisions for his people, get rid of all divorce. In order to live in, some, in the kind of honest integrity God envisions for his people, get rid of all oaths. Don't take them publicly. Don't take them privately. Just say yes and no and may both be more faithful than any vow one could ever make. And it would certainly be easy to wave a dismissive hand and say, well, sure, we understand what Jesus is getting at without having to take his teaching so literally. But honestly, I believe the, the reasons for Jesus' seemingly hardcore commands are as important as the outcomes he believes they steward. Drastic measures to affect drastic results. When we take Jesus at his word, the greater picture of his invitation comes into focus. They're like, oh, it makes so much sense why this guy was on about, come follow me, but first you have to die. Come follow me, but first deny yourself and take up your cross again and again and again. Then, Jesus says, you will have life. You will have life to the fullest, a life of peace and purity and honesty and integrity. And my hope is that we would learn to practice the way of Jesus together. My hope and my prayer for you, for myself in the coming week ahead is that may we begin to practice what it means to become honest and to become trustworthy in the name of Jesus. So with that in mind, would you guys pray with me and we'll invite the Spirit to come and speak over us.